Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt Eye Connections in New York taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about Eye Connections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. It seemed funny to me that the sunset she saw from her patio and the one I saw from the back steps was the same one. Maybe the two different worlds we lived in weren't so different. We saw the same sunset. Of course, that's a quote from Essie Hinton, who was a teenager when she wrote The Outsiders. She used the initials S-E so people wouldn't know whether or not she was a man or a woman. That's what the world was like back then. Now, that quote is fitting because in a few minutes, we're going to have a wonderful conversation with Anastasia Amoroso. So it's interesting to see her perspective on the sunset that the rest of us see. And the movie, The Outsiders, Danny Moses, by the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast, was such a fantastic movie. And I tell you, the cast, Patrick Swayze, Tom Cruise, C. Thomas Howell. Ralph Macchio. Ralph Macchio. Diane Lane, a very young Diane Lane, who to this day I have a bit of a crush on, all in that movie. But obviously, one of the themes in that was stay gold, pony boy. And why do I mention that, Danny Moses? Because all the things that are happening, and now Dan is probably wincing right now. We're going to talk about a lot of things. (laughs) The gold market, which you talked about many months ago, is peaking up its head. So I would say stay gold, not pony boy. Stay gold, Danny Moses. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Yeah, we can certainly touch on that. And listen, the one thing that's clear to me that Whatever would cause the market to rally would also make gold rally. What is that? That's the Fed stopping. That's the dollar starting to weaken. That's the Fed fund futures pulling back, which they are. And gold, again, to me, from a risk reward perspective, is, was, and it, I believe still is. It's had a nice little move here. Replace. So we'll see what happens, but we'll talk about yeah, that later. Yeah, you heard this on the market call guy and I the other day. I put a bearish position on the GLD. In your uh, face! Look, I know. Well, t- today, I'm a, it's a 1% yeah. against me. Ooh. Okay, I know. Yeah. I, and I heard Vinny and Porter on with you on what are we doing on Monday's edition here, and you guys were all geeked up about gold. And Vinny actually corrected you because he said it didn't do a whole heck of a lot. He said on a relative basis, relative to everything else out there, it did very well in I, 2022. I said it did very well. No, I don't I know. know where he pulled that crap from. I said it was fine, but people like, yeah, but it doesn't yield anything. And I'm 
like, yeah, but it was, so wait a second. Flat. Wait, was that, that your impersonation of Vinny? Or no, it's just my impersonation. Oh. Hey, listen, people, listeners, keep, keep tweeting at Vinny and Porter. We yeah. want them on all the time. We're going to do it. We're going to we get in a regular yeah, mode. All right, fair sure. enough. All right, so sure. check that out if you didn't listen to that one there. I, 100%. And listen, the conversation with Anastasia is going to be great. She's, as, as I'm going to say, you know, she's one of the people you want to listen to when you see her on either CNBC or Bloomberg. We're fortunate to have her. But in terms of the CPI report that we saw on Thursday, there's something for everyone. I think collectively we said back in June, I think, when the print came out 9.1%, that that would be the peak. We will not see another nine handle and things should start to trend lower. And things have trended lower. For some people, they've trended lower faster. For other people, it's still somewhat resilient and sticky. I'm one of the resilient and sticky people. But again, for both bulls and bears, there's a lot to take away from this. Danny Moses, your thoughts on CPI and what it means. Yeah, listen, it's trending down. That we know. How's the Fed going to react to it? This was a, quote, inline number. You can piece apart probably some parts that are still inflationary and some parts that you know are coming down. But I take all this stuff that we see in the beginning of the year, all the data points, the job number. People are trying to craft. I always say this, and I'm going to ask Anastasia the same question. If we were sitting here and the market was down 200 points for the year on the S&P instead of up, I don't even know if that's accurate, Dan. I don't know what the fact set thing says where we're up for the year in terms of points. But I would say, oh, that's because things are still going well in the job market. Therefore, the Fed's going to keep going. Or the CPI number, yeah, it's coming down, but it's still 6.5% year over year. So we're going to transition here, I think, quickly to next week when earnings start coming out. And I'll tell you right now, the most important thing to happen in the first 12 days of this year to me and it was already rumored, and it was, is Goldman Sachs starting to lay off thousands mm -hmm. of people? They don't do that at the beginning of a year at this point if they think that things are going to either turn around or you're going to see a pickup in IPO market, pickup in M&A, things like that. So a lot of the stuff that's going on right now I think is temporary. Unfortunately, I think we're sucking people in again, and it's going to be staircase up like this and then elevator down, and then it's going to feel really bad to me. And so that's my take right now. Yes, I'm still bearish. Yes, I've missed 4 to 5%. 10 days of trading does not a year make. I hear you, Danny, 100%. I think there's this misguided belief that once the Fed were to indicate they're going to stop, their job is done, like everything's going to be okay for the market. But the lag effect off of what they've done, and by the way, what they will continue to do with reducing their balance sheet has not been felt. And again, it comes down to earnings, earnings growth, revenue and revenue growth. And I will tell you, take the Fed out of the equation. You do not have the revenue, earnings growth, revenue, and earnings to sort of be supportive of the valuations we're seeing right now. And it's not bearish for the sake of being bearish. It's just trying to read the tea leaves. Right. Bookvar put out a piece about the bull bear index. Things have really shifted, neutral to slightly bullish at the same time. What's amazing to me is Fed Fund Futures are now literally pricing in a 95% chance of only 25 basis point hike in their next meeting in February. So we're pricing in already this happening. What I can't understand, and I don't think people understand, is that what would make them start to cut rates? It would be a massive slowdown in the economy. It would be something that we can't even predict that's going to happen. Well, just think so about this. I mean, the 10-year yield ended the year at 385 or so. It's trading at 343 mm -hmm. right now. The U.S. dollar is down more than 10% from its highs just made a little more than two months ago or so. So the Dixie, the U.S. dollar index, and again, half of that is the euro, and we're having a little bit of a reversion sort of trade there. You have crude oil back near 80 bucks. I mean, when you think about the S&P, 
S&P up 4%, the NASDAQ up 5% as we're taping this Thursday into the close here. This seems like a bit of monkey trading here, okay? Because I think, Guy, you say this all the time. I mean, that volatility in the treasury yield market, that's something you really want to focus on. And it's going in a way right now, I get why people think it's supportive of equity valuations. And I get why the dollar coming in is supportive of equity valuations. To your point about markets being valued on earnings growth. And those are two things that should be a tailwind to S&P earnings. But the point is, if we do see a demand slowdown, to me, this is a really nasty trading period, in my opinion, the first couple of weeks of the year. A lot of people want to believe, they want to kind of get in. And if you're buying this thing up nearly 4% into Q4 earnings and what we're likely to see on guidance, I just think that's kind of a bad way to start the year off, to be honest. And, you know, I hate to keep harping on this, but I talk about, because I look at these things as a barometer, right? The meme stocks. Yeah. I realize market cap-wise, who cares? Bed Bath Beyond just told you that they're going bankrupt. Going concern language, 500 million cash left, burning $300 million a quarter. It's over, right? They need some rescue. Stock is up. Again, doesn't matter, but it tells me the indication. Crypto is running like mad right now. All the kind of shit that's kind of running. And now people may like crypto, Danny, whatever, but my point is you can see the risk chase coming here early. And to me, that just sets it up for a worse fall. No question about it. And it's interesting. Why do we keep bringing up central banks and the role they play in the market? Because it's really important. Why did I start this with S.E. Hinton and Stay Gold, Danny Boy? Because something's going on here. Bank of Japan, I want to read this to you. Bank of Japan will consider adjusting bond purchases or other policy changes to counter turbulence caused by tweaks to its yield curve control. What does that mean? They're pushing buttons frantically. They do one thing to fix their currency and it does something else and they can't stop it. And that's why, in my opinion, gold is the play here. And these central bankers, which have run amok, they're all now trying to figure out, okay, I hit this button and it fixed my currency. What is it doing to my bond market? And that's the things that I look at to suggest that, yeah, maybe equity markets are not going to crater, but there's clearly something going on below the surface with central banks, with the bond market, with currencies that at some point are going to find its way into the equity market. Well, think about this. I mean, the VIX is trading below 20. It's about 19 right here. And last time we saw the VIX get creamed like this was after that November CPI print. We did see the S&P gap up and it reversed. I mean, we're giving back some of these earlier gains here. And I think to Danny's point about the meme stocks, I mean, when you saw money flowing into different parts of the market this week, originally when rates started to come in, you saw a lot of these higher valuation, unprofitable sort of tech companies. They saw huge gains earlier this week. Those have petered out a little bit here. There are some things, though, that I think is really important to keep an eye on. By the time you're listening to this, you're going to have four of the largest money center banks reporting. Wells Fargo, Citibank, JP Morgan, Bank America. Those are all Friday before the opening. And then you got to listen to what the companies are saying. Danny, you say that all the time. Read the Please. tens, read the cues. But there was some stuff out of Taiwan Semi. And I want to read this really quickly because I think this is important, mm-hmm. especially when you're thinking about what are some parts of the market where investors are going to go to first when they think that we're going to see a reflation in global growth. One of those is going to be semiconductors. So it's Taiwan Semi. We obviously know that they make chips for a lots of different global chip companies and they're domiciled in obviously Taiwan and China here. But this was a rundown of their earnings. And I think this is important because I think this might be a little glimmer of what we're expected to see. This is from Credit Suisse's trading desk after the report Thursday morning. TSM reports light Q4 sales and guides Q1 down 14% quarter 
over a quarter, but that's roughly in line with expectations. The first half guidance now implies down mid to high single digits and Q2 down 3% quarter over quarter and second half guided up. This is the important part to me, up implying year over year up 29%, okay? That's sequentially. And so to me, I think, This is becoming consensus right here is that Q1 and Q2 are going to be really bad. And then you're going to have second half loaded. Guys, do you remember we used to hear second half loaded? That's a dangerous trap to get into buying stocks into this, chasing them after you think they're just giving you trough sort of estimates. So to me, I think that this is a theme we might see in earnings season over the next couple of weeks. And I see Taiwan Semi, it's up six, 7% on the day because people are starting to believe this narrative. Well, yeah, listen, if you're the CEO of the company and you want to keep your job, you're willing it to happen. You want to keep your employees all geared in for the year. You say stuff to be optimistic. And maybe it'll be right. I don't know. But Dan, peeling that back from the global perspective, bringing it back to a sector that people want an excuse to buy, and I don't think they can, is home builders. KBH reported, I mean, the stocks had a decent run, right? But KBH reported they had a massive cancellation rate across Mm -hmm. the board, right? And the real impact is now being felt from all these. Now, it was already happening, but look what they said. Read that quarterly report. That's a dangerous script, though, Dan, to your point. I mean, effectively what Taiwan Semi is saying, and you said this, we're going to have a shitty first half and things are going to pick up meaningfully in the second half. So effectively, they've bought themselves, I don't know, three or four months-ish in terms of the market. And the market is saying, you know what, we're going to buy first, ask questions later. I encourage folks to go back and look at a Taiwan semi-chart, go back to August and look where we really broke down from, about $91 or so, which is what we're approaching right now. So although a lot of people want to jump in and say, you know what, I believe them, second half's going to be gangbusters, I want to get in now, valuation is somewhat compelling, blah, blah, blah. You really have to ask yourself, how much visibility... How is it possible in this environment for them to know what's going to happen in the back half of this year? You know, a lot of these names like this and just the market in general, we're going to go into, I think, a state of show me story. What's a show me story? It is up to the companies to show the street that they're actually making the numbers, not they're going to talk about it. We're not even close to that point yet. And when that does happen, obviously it will happen at some point. That will be part of the inflection period. But Dan, to your point, I don't think we're anywhere near that yet. So. We were talking about this a little earlier, looking at some charts. The NASDAQ 100 is so much closer to its October lows than the S&P 500, and it just really acts very heavy. And so when you think about 40% of that are the top five or six names, we know that Tesla, which is, I think, five or six, got off to a pretty nasty start here. Some of the other ones were kind of bit up a little bit. And so we saw that huge rotation in the fall into industrials, into energy. I mean, at some point, that has to correct itself. Energy has been this huge contributor. We've been quoting this facts at data for a while that without energy's contribution to the S&P. This is a sector that makes up less than 10% of the weight. We would have S&P earnings, I think, down close to 10% in Q4. So at some point in late first half of this year, energy kicks to a negative contributor to the S&P earnings. So I just think that's really important to remember is that we're going to need some of these other areas that have really been lagging to kind of pick up some steam. That's why you'll see money flow into some of these early cycle tech things like semis, but you better get this timing right here a little bit. I mean, there's going to come a time where you have to hold your nose and just buy, but to Guy's point, Taiwan Semi bottomed out at 60 bucks. It's $87 right now. It topped out before it broke down in October at 90. And so to me, you better believe this guidance they just gave, because if there are any global growth headwinds, this stock's going back down towards those lows. I would say, thank goodness for energy stocks right now in terms of money staying in the markets and wants to find a home. So it goes towards the energy stocks. I don't necessarily agree or 
counter that what you said about the second half that is me negative. It will be if the economy does start to slow down, and I think the economy will really start to slow down. That impact will be felt, but there's still kind of a renaissance going on in the sector. And your point, Dan, there is a limit to how overweight this group really can be at some point. But I think people are now probably chasing it, Dan. Yeah. They're, they're probably chasing because they know they're going to get good earnings. They know they have good balance sheets, and you'll pay a premium for that. And that premium could stay for a while. In a hard landing scenario, all bets are off. You know, it's funny, though, that soft landing cabal, which is becoming a sort of consensus right now, I mean, they keep pointing to the fact that that December jobs data was 3.5% unemployment. That was the pre-pandemic low. It was a 40-year low. And so that's why this narrative still exists, that the economy is actually in good shape here. And again, if you're looking at it through that lens, it might be. But like there are other parts. I mean, we were talking earlier today, Guy, about the services data that we saw within the CPI. I mean, it's weakening. We're seeing the housing market weakening right now. And I know we're going to talk a little bit with Anastasia about jobs and tech. And it seems like every day you wake up and there's a new headline about some tech company laying off 10,000 or 20,000 workers. I mean, tech workers in the U.S. are about 5 million. They're about 2% of all of our employed here. And these are also areas of the market that massively were hiring in 2019, 20, and 2021. So you're seeing a bit of a rationalization there. So the debate on whether we're in a strong economy or not, I think really goes back to the consumer here. And Guy, you've been quoting a lot of data about the consumer, about consumer credit and the like here. If you do see that unemployment rate tick up, and that is the final piece of the Fed's puzzle, it just doesn't seem like it's going to be above 4% anytime soon. Yeah, but that is, in fact, higher unemployment is not an outcome. It's a desired outcome yeah. for this Federal Reserve. They will keep the pedal to the metal until they start to see unemployment rate move up in a meaningful way. And just like they thought they could control inflation, which clearly they could not control, is the same way that somehow magically they're going to be able to control the unemployment rate, which I will tell you categorically, they're not going to control. And we talk about this all the time. We tape this on Thursdays. I only bring that up because by the time you're listening to this, you're going to hear a lot of commentary out of Jamie Dimon and some of these other bank CEOs, which I think is incredibly important. Because, listen, we can say what we want. To hear what they have to say is entirely different, and I think it's equally important. But I'll say this again. The things that we're talking about have been echoed by a lot of people, not least of which Paul Tudor Jones earlier this week on CNBC. So you can hear us say it and have one takeaway, but when you hear other people far more accomplished than I say it, I think you got to start to at least take notice. I'll say this. I don't enjoy politics at all. I think they're boring as shit. It's just not my thing. And we typically don't foray into that. But I'm going to for a second because the theater that we saw with the selection of the Speaker of the House was exactly that theater. But one has to wonder what's really going on behind the scenes. I mentioned that, Danny, in the context of the debt ceiling, which is something that comes up from time to time and everybody says we'll get through it and blah. I get it. But there's clearly something going on here in terms of the debt ceiling that I think the market isn't taking into consideration nearly enough. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, we're obsessed with the Fed and nothing else. But rest assured, this debt ceiling issue is coming. So the last time we had a debt ceiling issue was 2011. What's interesting about that standpoint is that was after 2010 when Dems controlled the Senate, right? Mm -hmm. So you know you had a fight on your hand. But let me put this in perspective. Back then, the limit of the debt was called was $14 trillion, but debt to GDP was 95%. This time, the debt ceiling limit's $31.4 trillion, and we're bouncing around More it, right? More than doubled. Yeah. And the debt to GDP is almost approaching, God, what, 150 150%. 150%. It's crazy, right? Back then, I would say there was more liquidity potentially in the bond market, but guess what? Rates were zero 
in 2011. There was QE going on. Now we have QT with rates going towards 5% here, right, on Fed funds. So very, very different setup. And so what's going to happen, obviously, when we get, and it will come up. And so people don't want to think about it now. I get it. By the way, it's another positive for gold there, guy. People don't want to talk about, oh, it's not. It's going to be at us in April or May. You're going to start to hear about it. And you need to start to think about it because what is the Fed going to do then? We saw this in 2011, the crisis that kind of came here. So one other thing I want to say is when you take a look at that $32 trillion in debt, the average rate that we're going to be paying on it as a percentage of revenue is massive. It's never, ever been this high. Back then, it was sustainable. You could actually, now you can't. So it's going to be bigger, Dan, in 2027 yeah. 20, than defense spending. Well, you just asked, what are they going to do? They're going to lower rates. That is the thing. Is they so have no choice. That's exactly right. As far as something going to break and what may happen, this is something that will be self-filling. S&P downgraded in the summer of 2011, the U.S. rating from AAA to AA+. Plus. You guys remember that. Mm -hmm. It was a massive futures bet that went off in the bond market. It was actually CDS on U.S. Treasuries, $850 million trade in 2011. Guy, how is liquidity in the bond market now if someone tried to pull off whatever? I don't know what 850 is today. Let's call it a billion three. Trade like that. We, it would be cataclysmic. So stuff will start to trade around this, and it's going to be an issue. So, yes, let's focus on the Fed right now. Yes, let's focus on earnings, which, by the way, I don't think will be that great. But behind the scenes, what structurally, there's a massive issue here. And believe me, the way this is going in D.C., set up. And I want to say one other thing. Please. You know what? The one thing, and we talked about China reopening and how important it might be. You want to hear this? The House, this House, this dysfunctional House, on a vote of 365 to 65, just voted to form a special committee to investigate the Chinese government's economic, technological, security progress, competitive market in the U.S. Think about that for a second. So you want to talk about a Chinese Cold War that literally is beginning here economically. So again, God, I'm getting all freaking bared up in our beautiful, by the way, <laughs> beautiful new studios, by the way, at Current, Dan. I mean, this is pretty amazing, dope, right? pretty dope. This yeah. place is outrageous, yeah. right? They're doing payment technology wizardry out there. We're in here, whatever. But again, I start to think about these things because they are going to be, you can't avoid it, right? You know, it's coming. So that's a rip off the tape, by the way, on the dead side. Oh, that, that's my first rot. rot. We haven't had a rot in That's a while. my first well, rot of 2023. You came in in such a good mood, and I tuned you up a little bit. Yeah, here. but the dead side is an issue, so people it, pay it's attention. It's a huge issue, and I'll say this. And again, not that I'm some historian, but I fancy myself a bit of a renaissance man, Danny, as you know. And I'll say no developed economy in the history of the world has been able to recover from a debt to GDP north of 120%, let alone... 150%, which is where we find ourselves. And the debt service that you so correctly brought up is, I don't want to say cataclysmic, but it's extraordinarily difficult to navigate in this environment. And just one other thing. A lot of you will say, well, gee whiz, everything you just said, if the Fed's going to cut rates in the back or sometime this year, that's really bullish. I don't know about that. I'm not convinced that if the Fed were to pull that trigger again, it's going to be all that. But might be in the short term, but long term, it suggests something really shitty is going on. on. I got to tell you guys another story. So oh, I like stories. As I flew up here yesterday to see you guys, oh, right? That was nice. So I was on a flight, JetBlue, out of Fort Lauderdale, coming to New York yesterday. Is that my, what you call your plane? My, you're a dick. My, my flight time, <laughs> it's not funny. My scheduled departure was like 7.03 a.m. Yeah. Okay. So... We taxi out. They leave early, 6.50. Oh my you're my son is sitting on my left, and he knows I'm not a great flyer to begin with. He takes his iPhone. He puts it in my face, and it says, FAA to ground flights. I go, well, we're not going, obviously. And as I look at him, our flight's rolling down the runway and freaking takes off, okay? <laughs> now, now on JetBlue, you got the televisions, right? So I turn on Tom Costello's on the Today Show talking about this stuff, whatever. 
I think he's the best analyst in that area. And he goes, let's take a look at flight aware right now. Not many flights are in the air. And I see like on an asteroid, I swear what I think is my plane. There might be 11 planes flying <laughs> up the East Coast. So I'm texting people. I'm like, am I safe? What's happening? And I'll tell you this. The Postal Service in the UK, what's it called? The the Post. The bad, Post. The Sorry. bath no. to the bad no, teeth post, postman. Hold on. I think it was a cybersecurity yeah, 100%. issue, right? Because today, the Postal Service in the UK, they got hacked, yeah. right? And it shut down all the parcel stuff going in and out. So I think that's coordinated. I think that has to do, obviously, with the Russia sanctions, which we're talking about doing 100%. price caps again. So again, people, I don't think it was a software glitch. I think that's a hack. So I started seeing the scene of Die Hard 2 guy when like, yeah. Oh, Dulles. Yeah, this is the tower. You're free to land. Anyway, sorry. Is this Dan. a setup, though? Because I wanted to hit these airlines. I mean, United's up 34% on the year. American's up 32% on the year. Delta is up 20% of the year. Delta, as you, by the time you're listening to this, will have just reported United had really good results here. Listen, as our friend Jim Cramer says, there's a bull market everywhere. Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to use cybersecurity as a reason to short the airlines. Are there any areas that have just kind of gotten out of the gate already, Danny, that you're thinking about, you know what, we're going to have to see these things come back? Here's the beauty there. Airlines. They can just do whatever they want to the yeah. consumer. You yeah, know, I've, I've talked about this before. And then when things get really tough, God forbid something happens. They go well, hat in hand. They get bailed out. Yeah. You know, bailed out every time and they come back. And so, it, you know, how I feel about the airlines. But listen, if I told you the market was 3,500 right now in the S&P instead of where did it close? 3,980. 3980? Yeah. It's up to 3980. Yeah, you, you better call your broker. Wow, that's not good. What I'm saying is I could have come up with the same narrative. You're putting on hedging it strategies. Is. It's shitty. It's it's not a great rally. This rally has not been helpful. Yeah, but I, listen, this goes back how we started the show here. Okay, we've all been doing this for a long time. And for some reason, the way that people on Wall Street get compensated, right? It's really important to kind of mark your books up or reset the stage for the new year. And so people are willing to take unusual risk early on in the year and do things that don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense. And so I'm particularly nervous about the fact that things that we've been talking about, why we're not particularly bullish on equities for all of last year, people have come around to that thought process. My concern right now is that we haven't really seen consensus S&P earnings come down to a point that's discounting even a soft landing, in my opinion. So I'm going to go back to, we have a VIX at 19. Over the last 13 months, every time the VIX was a teenager, it was a great time to sell stocks. It was just that simple. And so to me, yes, it's great that rates are coming down. Yes, it's great that dollars coming down for corporate earnings. But to your point, we actually haven't seen the economy slow meaningfully. I think GDP estimates for Q4 are somewhere, what, 4% or something like that. So I think if you're chasing here, I think you probably sit on your hands a little bit. Listen to what some of these big companies have to say. By the way, is Jacob just pointed out to me, it's Royal Mail. The Royal Mail was hacked. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The Royal Mail. Yeah. But Dan, people enter the year, professional money managers, they don't want to feel like they have to chase. It's getting close to a point or it yeah. feels like where they're going to start to Yeah, have but to wouldn't you love to see the S&P up 7 or 8% in the next couple of weeks? It would be literally the easiest short trade um, see, that no, we've I'm seen. Saying, but it, I'm saying well, when what it does turn, it's going to feel pitch? shitty. Pardon me? It'd be a fat pitch. Like a big just softball coming softball, right at you. Yeah, like yeah, a yeah. soft, like some of the questions people ask. We don't ask softball questions. Danny, I'm going to ask you a bit of a softball <laughs> question here. Before we get into our conversation with Anastasia, who's wonderful, by the way, we have reached the playoff portion of Thank the National God, Football Thank God, me out of the regular season. So you were, let's just call you 500. But I ended strong, 2-0 last week. So Yes, that's you did. Momentum into the playoffs. Momentum is, into the playoffs is always a good thing. Yeah. Speaking of momentum into the playoffs, yeah. my New York football giants find themselves in the playoffs, traveling to Minnesota on Sunday to play extraordinarily overrated Viking team. I think a lot of money is going to find their way to the New York Giants. By the way, when we started this football season, you may recall, Danny, because I know you do, I said how the Eagles had the best roster in football. Nobody's talking about them. 
They basically wired to wire the entire thing. Okay, number one. I also said my sleeper team was the Jacksonville Jaguars with a now mature quarterback behind center in the form of Trevor Lawrence. That came to fruition. So maybe I'm a bit of a savant here, but it's not about me and my football commentary. It's all about you. So, Danny, please educate us as to what you like as the playoffs begin in earnest this weekend. You're a wise man, Guy, and I will say you did call the Eagles. You did say look out for Jacksonville. The picks you didn't like with, that I had, normally you were right. The ones that you liked, I normally would write. I wish you would start to gamble with me. It would help me out a lot here. <laughs> so all these games, so it's two things. I picked the Bills at the beginning of the season you to did. win the Super Bowl. I'm going to stick with that. You should. So right now, it's not a great bet. They're three and a half to one, but I would take them. I think they're playing with so much emotion, and I think they're going to start to play their best football right now. And the AFC is extremely Loaded. strong. I mean, Cincinnati, Kansas City, Buffalo. So the pick, I have one pick this week because the lines are too big. I mean, Buffalo given 13 to Miami. It's too much. I'm not going to bet against Tom Brady as an underdog, even though I think Dallas wins that game. I'm going to take the Chargers of Los Angeles guy. And now it's up to two and a half. They're giving two and a half. It opened, I think, at one and a half. They're laying two and a half in Jacksonville. I think Jacksonville over-earned a little bit. Their defense won it. And maybe that'll be what wins it for them this week. And going against a home dog in the playoffs is dangerous. I'm going to take the Chargers. They've been playing great football. Obviously, they had some little bit of a slip. Oh, Dan. I have one pick. Oh, tell I me have one pick. Tell me it's Jacksonville. No, it's not Jacksonville. <laughs> I, I think the Vikings probably win by two touchdowns over guys. New York guys not going to like that. I actually like the Giants this week, but I won't take them. But you I'll, I'll, you I'll take do it. Yeah, I'll take the Giants. But is that okay, guy? I, I mean, you too. I don't like when you guys right. bet because it creates a we'll lot. We settle of... here next week on the five hundred dollars. Done. I'll take the Giants plus three. Done. Because they're playing with house money. Minnesota sucks. When we come back. Anastasia Amoroso joins us on the tape. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one -on -one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Anastasia Amoroso is a managing director and the chief investment strategist at iCapital Network. In this role, she is responsible for providing insight on private market investing opportunities for advisors and their high net worth clients. Previously, Anastasia was an executive director and the head of cross-asset thematic strategy for J.P. Morgan Private Bank, where she identified and invested in emerging technologies and disruptive trends such as artificial intelligence, 
decarbonization, and gene therapy. Anastasia regularly appears on CNBC and Bloomberg TV and is often quoted in the financial press. Anastasia, welcome to On the Tape. You know, Dan and Danny, there are times on CNBC when somebody comes on and you need to turn the volume up because you want to hear what she or he has to say. I will tell you that Anastasia is one of those people that I know myself turns the volume up for. Welcome here to On the Tape. How are you? Thanks, Guy. Good to be here. Well, it's true. I mean, don't be <laughs> humble. You don't be humble. It happens to be true. So if it's true, you ain't it's bragging. Like, it's, it's actually just, welcome back to On the Tape. Welcome back. Anastasia, welcome back to On exactly. the Tape. All right. So, Anastasia, one of the big themes I remember, you and I talked offline on many occasions, and I did see you. She was on the IC on many occasions sure. with our friend EY from SoFi. Yeah, they the would find themselves kitty. on the investment kitty with Scott Wapner here. But a big theme I remember hearing from the get-go for you early in 2022 was just kind of an environment with lower expected returns. Okay. Talk to us a little bit about how you came about that thesis in early 2022. Obviously, everyone's focused on what the Fed was going to do to kind of tamp down inflation. How did did it play out in and around the edges of your outlook for the year? And then we obviously want to spend a lot of time on what you're thinking about this year in 2023. Well, it's great to be back with you guys. And I mean, 2022 seems like ancient history now. But yes, when we first thought about what 2022 might be like, the title of the outlook I had was the year of higher hurdle rates and lower expected returns. And if I were to grade how we fared on that, I give ourselves some good partial credit here because I think we got the directionality of it right in that we expected the hurdle rate to be high in terms of inflation, but didn't quite predict that it was going to go to eight and a half or higher percent. And we expected the returns from the equity and fixed income markets to be lower, but again, didn't predict for the 60-40 portfolio to be down 16 or 17 percent. So I would say some of the themes played out, but the magnitude of which they played out certainly surprised a lot of us. So as we turn the calendar, we went to 2023. I know you're kind of positioned to be defensive in the first half and opportunistic in the second half, but a lot of fund managers don't have the choice. They have to stay invested. So in terms of, I know you're talking about private credit, macro hedge funds, structured investments. Can you narrow that down a little bit to the retail investor maybe and say, where can they be in the first half, even in a tumultuous market that looks like we're going to be in? Yeah. And you know what? I don't think those are mutually exclusive things, defensive and opportunistic. I don't think you only stick to the defensive playbook for the first half of the year and then chase the opportunities in the second half. I think you can do both, but you start to kind of fine tune the percentages in which you are being defensive versus what you're being opportunistic. What I mean by defensive, and I say the investors right now have the luxury of being both defensive and opportunistic. And what I mean by that is we have the luxury of getting paid 4%, close to 4% or more in cash and cash equivalents in short-term treasuries. So that's a luxury we haven't had in a long time. So use that to your advantage as we wait for things to fall into the right place in the equity markets. It actually pays to wait. And that's the great thing about being defensive now. Now, you don't just stick to cash and cash equivalents. You look across the fixed income universe and there's been a huge repricing in fixed income, whether it's rates, whether it's credit. So I would look to high quality fixed income investment grade that's now yielding five or six percent, maybe parts of high yield, which I also like where credit quality is there. And guess what? They're not leveraged loans, so they don't have that higher cost burden. So I like those opportunities to be defensive and get paid while you wait. 
But at the same time, you guys would agree with me. I mean, look at this market. It is starting this year on a very strong note. So if you're waiting for the full reversal in the second half, and that's where you want to get invested, that's probably not the right approach either. So given the recent valuations that we had across the spectrum, the other luxury investors have right now is to start inching in and to have a plan for the next three to six months and say, I'm going to be deliberate. I'm going to be methodical. I'm going to be committed to deploying capital across opportunities. Some of that may be in public markets. So we can talk about some of the sectors, whether it's semis or discretionary, and some of them will be in private markets and things like buy out private equity. I mean, it's usually after the downturn years where you have some of the best vintages. So how do you tell people that are waiting for the Fed to, quote, stop or signal? I mean, that's a given, right? It's going to happen probably in the first quarter. But what about after that? Because the impact of these Fed hikes are still being felt because it's a lag. You call it nine months, 12 months, whatever it is. It's just now really seeping in. So once people get past kind of the Fed is done, then what? Because to me, it's kind of a sell the news event. I'm curious to get your thoughts. And that's really near term, maybe middle of first quarter type thing. But how would you position for that? It seems to me that most people have started to price in some sort of a growth slowdown and a recession. And if you think about the growth expectations for this year, nobody is expecting much. Three or four months ago, if you looked at 2023 GDP estimates, there are one and a half, in some cases, 2% for several quarters out. You look at consensus estimates today for GDP and they're zero or maybe slightly negative for most of the quarters. So I think most people have penciled in that we're not going to see much in terms of growth for this year. And then I would look at earnings. Look, the S&P 500 EPS was 250, again, six months ago. It has now been marked down to 231. And if we don't have a severe protracted recession, which I don't think that's the base case, then I think we might have done a big chunk of the earnings cuts that needed to happen. And another way to look at it, you look at the bottoms up part of it. And if you look at the number of downgrades across different companies that have happened, those downgrades far outpace upgrades, of course. But we're now on par to some of the economic slowdown levels that we have seen before. So I guess the point is we might have priced in the bulk of a slowdown, maybe even a shallow recession. I think for the markets to take a meaningfully lower leg down, we'd have to have a severe recession. We'd have to have massive dislocation. We'd have to have leverage that amplifies certain things. And I don't think that's the case for the broad economy. Will there be dislocation in leverage loans? Sure. Will there be dislocation in maybe parts of private credit? Absolutely. But I think this distressed investing will actually end up being an opportunity set for investors. So you just mentioned S&P earnings consensus six months ago was about $250. And there's some strategists on the street who their base case is basically $195. Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley was on last week. He sees a worst case scenario. That's probably that deep, longer recession where you see S&P earnings at 180. And listen, we've been doing this a long time. I mean, there's no way that you can have the pace of hikes that we've seen over the last year and not have the sort of hit to corporate earnings that would probably place year over year 2022 into 2023 as somewhere in the, at best case, single digits gains and more likely to be flat-ish or so. So my question to you is that there's a growing consensus right now, especially with the way we're seeing some of this inflation data, that we're going to have a soft landing, but we really haven't seen anything other than multiple compression with rates going higher, at least in the mega cap 
space in the S&P 500 in particular here. So I'm just curious, like, how do you square that off? Because we've just seen the most aggressive tightening, I think, in what, 30, 40 years, Danny, or something like that. And we actually haven't seen material downgrades to forward guidance by some of our biggest companies that are the biggest contributors to S&P earnings. So I'm just curious. I don't think we've really discounted a whole heck of a lot because we haven't even had the number cuts yet. Yeah, I mean, we had some, but to your point, maybe we haven't fully completed this process. The way that I would address that is twofold. First of all, what distinguishes a soft landing versus a hard landing? And I would say it's the labor market. Well, it is possible that, I mean, it's very probable that growth is going to continue to be soft. But the question is, is this going to result in a huge spike in the unemployment rate as we had, let's say, during the financial crisis? And if it does, then I agree with you. We need to account for that second order effect and we need to take down those earnings estimates lower still. But if you look at the labor market today, I mean, look, there's layoffs that are happening in the tech space. Tech now accounts for 50% or more of the layoffs, and there's probably going to be more to come. But at the same time, there is a rebalancing that's happening in the labor market, and labor force participation rate is still low. So, and job openings are still near record highs. So, people are finding jobs. And that's why unemployment rate likely rises, but it doesn't skyrocket. And I think that prevents some of the hardest landing scenarios and the need to take earnings estimates significantly lower. That's the first thing. The second thing is, do you think companies not know what the growth landscape looks like? They don't know that the economy is either in a recession today or will be tomorrow. I think they're positioning for it. And so, Dan, I think you know, the way to be more optimistic about earnings is to actually start looking at companies that are right-sizing their cost structures. Why is it the tech is laying off people? Why is it the financial services are laying off people? Communication services. Well, if you look at the margins of the S&P, of course, they've peaked for every sector, but they've really started to come down across tech, communication services, and financials. And that's why those are the first sectors to start to reduce their labor base and to reduce CapEx and you know, reduce their buybacks. And I think as this progresses, it will affect more and more sectors, but there are levers they can pull to preserve those margins. And I think that's what the market is going to focus on. Yeah, you know, it's interesting though. There's just so much focus on tech layoffs. And when you think about it, I mean, tech supposedly makes up less than 3% or so of U.S. employment. And we also know that was a huge part of this COVID expansion within tech. So to me, I think if you're focused on how many jobs Amazon's cutting, and Amazon doubled its workforce from 2019 at about 800,000 workers to about 1.6 million last year, and they're laying off 18,000 workers. It's kind of a rounding error. And so I guess what I'm most focused on, though, is broadening out beyond tech, because if you're all of these SaaS companies and you've been forecasting year-over-year growth, which is 20-plus percent sales, you had this valuation that was fatter than that on a multiple of sales. At some point, if there is a broader slow down, if it hits the blue collar economy here, these multiples for some of these that are still high priced, what did we have Microsoft above 20 times or something like that? They're coming down. And so I guess what I'm saying is I don't even think that we have seen the cuts for what looks like maybe the potential for a shallow and short recession in 2023 right now. I think we started at the beginning of those cuts. And one thing that I would point to, you mentioned all these digital transformation projects, and we used to think that software is immune from a cyclical slowdown, and clearly it's not. But over the summer, there was a survey that I saw how 
software companies are positioning for the demand environment. And many of them have said they're starting to see their customers delay signing up for new projects and delay new bookings. And I think the wave of some of the downgrades for software companies actually started at the beginning on the third and fourth quarter of last year. Is it fully finished? No, probably not. But I think it has started. Now, the other thing I would say on an aggregate index basis, if you look at software SaaS companies, they were trading at 20 times enterprise value to forward revenue this time last year. They're trading at 5.5 times today. So we've seen a huge valuation reset. And look, if you were to poke a hole in this, you would say, well, these are not dirt cheap multiples because we've just corrected to averages. But my point is, I think we need to see a hard landing and more than a shallow recession that we have to price in in order to see those truly, truly dirt cheap multiples. But have we corrected for the 5% interest rate environment? I think we have. Indulge me for a second, Anastasia. I ask Dan questions, Danny sometimes as well, to help me because I'm not that young and I don't understand these things. On January 6th, Dan, what do they call it when you surf channels on cable television? Channel surfing. Channel surfing. Yeah. It's funny. That's what they call it. Yeah. Well, I was channel surfing on January 6th, and I stumbled upon Bloomberg. And who was on it? Anastasia was on Bloomberg. And you were talking about that day, how the data that came out gave some merit to this notion of soft landing. So here's my question to you. What does it look like? Forget about the S&P for a second. What does it look like in terms of 10-year yields? Where do we sort of find a home? And more importantly, in order for that to happen, there has to be no significant hiccup in the credit markets. Are you seeing anything in the credit markets that suggests maybe we're going to get through this thing unscathed? Yeah, well, first of all, soft landing, what does that look like? And I think I called the jobs report as kind of a soft landing report. What that looks like is below potential GDP growth, which is zero flatline GDP. And at the same time, the labor market that's now weakening materially. And what we saw in the last payrolls report is the fact that jobs are still being created and yet the wage pressure is starting to abate. And I think that's exactly what the soft landing looks like for the Fed. Are we going to be fully unscathed and credit markets are going to be just fine? It depends on what part of the credit markets you look at. So, for example, one of the interesting dynamics we saw late last year is that you had this convergence in yields where leveraged loan yields to take out and yield to worse on high yield and then private credit. They've all converged around this 10 or 11 percent range. And you look at this and say, well, which one do you pick and which one is the least vulnerable? And after looking at the credit fundamentals, what you see is high yield credit fundamentals have actually improved. They've been upgraded. There's less lower quality issuance that's coming to the high yield market and the leverage ratios have come down. That is not the case for the leverage loan market that tripled in size has caught up with the size of the high yield market. And if the interest coverage ratio for leverage loans was three and a half times at the start of 2022, by the time the Fed is done for a third of the leverage loan market, the coverage ratio is going to dip to one times or below. So, Guy, that's where I think we will start to see pockets of dislocation and pockets of distress. The reason I'm not concerned that this is going to take the whole economy down is it's not the size of the mortgage rate market. It's not the CDO squared that we saw in 2008. This is much smaller. But for investors who are looking for opportunities in credit markets, I think they're going to be looking for this dislocation. How do you factor in what's called the reopening of China right now and what that means to? global equities, global everything, because it's really an unknown right now. It's just kind of beginning. I know energy people are trying to quantify it as it relates to energy demand. What I mean, but 
How do you factor that in? What are your expectations for China kind of reemerging this year? I think it would be a huge upside surprise for the markets, and clearly, it has been priced in somewhat. We're looking at the China ETFs; they've rallied eighty percent since the end of October, but off a very, very low base. I think there is a true reopening process that's going to be underway there, and can't come from a lower point in terms of economic data in China. So, between reopening, between relaxing some of the property restrictions, between maybe letting The big tech in China breathe a little bit again. Those are three really powerful tailwinds for Chinese equities. Now, I think many of us have been burned many a time on investing in Chinese markets and then having to pivot very quickly. So I'm not sure that investing in Chinese equities is the best way, but I think investing in energy is one of the proxy ideas that I would have to position for China reopening. I mean, U.S. economy, if it slows down but it doesn't grind to a halt, and if we don't have a recession, I don't see the mobility demand in the United States slowing down all that much. I don't see the mobility demand in Europe slowing down. But if China demand, if we go from 15.4 million barrels of demand in China back to 16 or higher, that's a positive for the energy markets. And I don't know if I want to be buying oil necessarily, but I want to be buying energy equities. And you see the relationship where, even though oil prices have come down, energy as a sector has held in very well. So, what matters for energy equities? What does that forward-looking 12-month strip look like? What does OPEC want that strip to look like? And I think China demand rebounding and OPEC really wanting to maintain a certain level of prices so they can invest in expanding capacity. That's likely to support seven to eighty dollars on crude. If that's the case, that's Pretty great for、um, oil and gas stocks. Unbelievable! It sounds like I mean,、right. Danny, is that、yeah. the craziest thing? Yeah. I mean, it sounds as though、She's、Anastasia been, listens to the on the tape podcast. Tape. I think so. I think I think <laughs> while you're channel surfing, finding her, I think she's Spotify searching, looking for you guys. No, I doubt that highly. Yeah. But yeah. what <laughs> I will say is, everything she said far more eloquently than I ever did is exactly what we've been talking about in the energy market: the fact that the commodity, the underlying commodity. Can stay here and go sideways, and these energy equities are still pretty interesting, Danny. Moses. No, was, it's really because money's looking to find a home in the U.S. equity market. So the one thing that's been happening is still the sexiest game in town, if you want to call it that, right? So it's all a point of where you put your money, and if you're a fund manager, what do you overweight, what do you underweight, and where do you want to be? And I think as we see Q4 and maybe even Q1, I think there's no better growth area and earnings potential than energy. Yes, it'll have its limit at some point, but if China. Just reawakens a little bit. I mean, that's a massive impact on it. So I totally agree. Commodity markets were dead for a very long time. I mean, I traded commodities in the late '80s into the '90s. Commodities went away. We really never talked about them on our show, Fast Money. We started talking about them in earnest. Then commodities collectively fell off a cliff. But in terms of what you do, obviously, that's become such a huge input. When you're looking at commodities, understanding that energy is such a huge component, what are you watching? Is there any tells? Because recently, base metals are starting to get off the mat. Danny, maybe that's coincides with what's going on in China, but these input costs, which again fell off a cliff, are starting to show signs of recovery again. How closely do you watch? I think it's been clearly an important asset class in 2022, and really kind of spotlighted the fact that that might continue to be the case. Because look. The world is short of everything. Is,、right. is what we realized. Right. In, uh, in Dan, hold on a second. Yes, 
thank you. The world is short of everything. Way, You're this right. table almost came apart. On no, that because time. when she says that, I mean, it's like I put on a news channel and they said all the things Wait, that so I believe. so we're short of crude. We're short of dollars. They keep going down. The big buyers of treasuries don't exist anymore. China, so yields are going down. So I hear stuff like that. I get it. I mean, that's kind of fancy talking head speak guy. I didn't like say that, this she's that, a lot smarter than I am. And she said no, she's I right. Know, but it's just like, yeah, I'm, I have I have the crude chart up on my fact set machine right here. Okay. It looks like unholy death. I'm just telling you. So we can sit here and we could bring in the smartest macro minds on the planet. And we could talk about what China's contribution is going to be to a reopening in 2023 to global growth. And this thing can't get out of its own way. Can I ask a question? Yeah. It's your podcast. It's, it right. is your podcast. Here's a question for you, Anastasia. Let's say we were sitting here. I'm here for it. We are sitting here. We're all sitting here. I gave you all the same economic data points, the job report that came out last week. Everything's the same. But I have an S&P that's at 35, 35, 50 instead of 39, 50. And you have to create a case for why it's there. Because it sounds like what we're doing is we're making excuses almost for, oh, it must be that it's a soft landing. And I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I'm saying that's what the market is wanted to be. But what if it wasn't? What if it was the same data? I asked you the same question. Why is the market down to 3550 or 3600? What will your answer be based upon the same data that we've seen? Great question. Look, the answer is that we're probably pricing in a hard landing and the Fed that's not stopping. And the Fed may be going not to 5%, they might be going to 6%. And here's another chart that I really saw just before coming onto this podcast is the data that we have today with the CPI rising 0.3% month over month, that actually puts us on track to see 2% year over year inflation by the middle of this year. However, guess what happens after that? <laughs> the comparisons become a little bit tougher because inflation has peaked over the summer. So it is possible that inflation for now subsides, but starts to rising back up again in the summer. So I think if that is the case, then the Fed may not stop at 5%. They may go somewhat higher. So I think that's one of the scenarios that would get us to 3,500. That's one. The second one is maybe it's the lagged effects. And we talked about we're close to 5% today. Where are the dislocations going to come from? What's hiding in the shadows that's going to come out to the front? We've mostly dealt with crypto, but have we seen the dislocation in the credit markets? Maybe the answer to that is, is no. So as the default rates start to pick up in the credit markets, that could be one thing that spooks the equity market as well. But these are hypothetical. Now, people are listening to this and they're saying, not necessarily you three, you two and a half. So mostly me, mostly Danny, <laughs> half Dan Nathan, because you're always looking for constructive things. You're all negative all the time. But Anastasia, you're not. And you have some pretty high conviction ideas for 2023. Software and semis, public REITs. Can you speak to that? Because... People don't want to hear all the negativity from us all the time. They want to hear about opportunity. And I think you see some things out there for this year. Well, I see some things. And, you know, it's sort of the fresh look that you have when you first come into the year. Like, it's easy to get caught up in all the doom and gloom. And I'm not dismissing how challenging the environment still is. But if you take a step back, and I have this valuation chart that looks at the cross-asset valuations, and they were the 90th percentile expensive for just about anything that you looked at, whether it's rates, whether it's credit spreads, whether it's equities. But if I look at it today, rates are as cheap as they have been in 15 years, and equity markets, they're not cheap, but they're also not expensive. They're sort of down the middle. Credit markets have gotten a lot cheaper. And guess what? This year, is when we're going to see more of a complete correction in the private market valuations. 
So with that as a backdrop, that's why I came into this year a little bit more optimistic because we have seen a huge reset in some of these valuations already. So things that we would be looking to do within the portfolio, I'll start with the private market side. I mentioned buyout private equity. So we've seen public market valuations pull back and typically private markets follow with a lag of six to nine months. So we haven't fully seen that yet. The other thing I would say, a lot of companies that raise venture capital dollars in the tail end of 2021, that funding usually lasts 12 months or more. Well, guess what? That funding has run out. And sometime in 2023, venture-backed companies, private equity-backed companies will likely be looking to raise rounds. And as they do, they're not going to be able to raise them at the 2021 valuations. So we'll finally start to see that step down. And for investors, when you think about when is the best time to add to buy out private equity, it's the downturn years. It's the vintages that follow the financial crisis. It's the vintages that follow the 2015, 2016 valuation reset. So I think the 2023 year vintage is going to be much better for investors than a 2021 would have been. Danny, that would be like an 85 Petrus or 1982 Margot or an 82 Cheval Blanc, let's Guy's say. Guy's such a renaissance. He always surprises me. I love where you're going with that. Yeah. <laughs> Those are vintage years. So as we enter 2023, we're dealing kind of with a hangover of all the underwritten credit from the last few years when zombie companies got access and the Fed and the Treasury were actually buying high yield paper. So for me, to your point, obviously anything that's underwritten in 2023 will be much better than anything we saw in 2021 and 22. On top of that, Goldman Sachs obviously doesn't take laying people off lightly. They obviously see the M&A is going to slow down. The IPO market's going to continue to slow down. And that tells me they're not preparing for a soft landing, and certainly as it relates potentially to credit. So when I look at all that kind of put together and looking forward, it's easy to say we'll be able to find decent credit opportunities, but it feels like we'll be dealing with the hangover of the last few years as we enter this year. Yeah, Danny, I mean, you're spot on to say that the correction in private markets across the board, whether it's real estate, whether it's private credit, whether it's private equity, it is not yet complete. But just to put some stats and numbers around it, I mean, through the first half of last year, the 60-40 portfolio was down 16%. Through that same first half of last year, the private markets portfolio of real estate, of private credit, of private equity was up 4%. So yes, there's a correction to still be had, but it's coming from kind of a much better and a much higher place. Now, when it comes to real estate, I think we've seen a huge repricing in the public side, but that repricing needs to happen in the private side. If you look at cap rates, for example, and the cap rate spread versus the treasury, it is at near record lows. So I would love to see that cap rates move higher, valuations reset lower, and that's gonna create an opportunity for uh, some of the real estate investors. But if you think about private real estate, it was up 25% year over year at one point. So if we give some of that back, I think that that's okay. And by the way, income and all these things is still being paid and is growing at the rate of inflation, or in some cases more. When it comes to private equity valuations, we're seeing a reset in private credit too. But one dynamic that you don't have with private markets as you do with public, you don't have the technicals. You don't have the market dislocation. It's not like you're selling into an illiquid market. And because of that, I mean, historically, the drawdowns we saw in private credit were never on par with leveraged loans or high yield. And I suspect that's not going to be the case this time around as well. So some markdowns perhaps still to follow, but I don't expect them to match the public market. Anastasia, thank you so much for joining us once again here on the tape. People can find you on the Twitter at A 
Amoroso underscore one because there's some Johnson out there that was probably <laughs> trying to steal your identity because that's the world we live in, Danny there's, there's Moses. There's been a few. There's been a few. There have been a few. That's but you, the one. But the folks should definitely follow her on Twitter. You do very extraordinarily thoughtful work, and we're really honored to have you join us yet again. Thank you. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.